0: Uh, so let's get right into it. So, welcome to the uh, webinar, which is uh, obviously centered around current events. Or the title of the webinar being Cyber Warfare and its Impact on Your Business. My name is Jan Bervar. I'm the uh, product owner of the Conscious Cyber Defense Solutions, which is the MDR solutions that we offer. And with me, I have David Kasabi, who is our threat intelligence czar, who will be helping us on our journey into the depths uh, of the current happenings in terms of. The impact of cyber warfare on businesses, which are, um, which are connected somehow to the current events, or also those who are perhaps not connected. So uh, we'll take about 45 minutes, leaving some space at the end for the questions and answers and uh, I will get right into it. So, uh, welcoming you uh, on behalf of Consha. Concha is a pan European company. We employ almost 1000 people uh, more than 400 engineers and 1 of our core. Strategies is to be a leading cybersecurity provider in the European space. So we are present in six markets and uh, David and me are hailing from Slovenia where our SOC and threat intelligence services are based. Uh, So, getting right into it today's topics uh, is uh, the topics is cyber warfare and its connection to our businesses to our organizations. And uh, just to start with, we will do some very basic definitions to see if we all agree on what cyber warfare is. So cyber warfare is any kind of digital adversarial activity. So some kind of hostile activity, which is uh, created by states and is based on kind of a policy. So it's a kind of a focused planned activity by states. Um, uh, the, the typical characteristics of cyber warfare, it's, it's hard to attribute that. So we are all never completely sure that a particular state is standing behind particular activity, uh, which also creates the ease of false flag operations. Uh, 1 of my typical questions in the past was, uh, why is so much cyber warfare tolerated without any kind of, you know, physical response. And the fact is that mostly because of all those false flag operations, it is uh, not certain. Who the actor is behind a particular activity, and it's very rare that it elicits a kinetic response to say in the physical world. So the 1st time we have actually seen some kind of kinetic response to cyber warfare was in, uh, in Israel. Actually, when Israel uh, was uh, created a kinetic response to certain hacking attempts, uh, which were uh, done in 2019. So a late, uh, a late occurrence of a kinetic response to cyber warfare. So most cyber warfare. Is kind of responded to by cyber warfare and stays within the cybersphere or the digital world. Uh, what is also important, I think, is that we have to always gauge. About the scope of cyber warfare, so who is involved? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here, right? We are all coming mostly from backgrounds of either commercial or uh, nonprofit organizations, for example, and it is in our interest to understand. How cyber warfare will impact us are not directly involved in any kind of political conflicts. So the scope of cyber war typically involves directly involved parties, what we are currently observing in the Ukraine war. Uh, it also, of course, uh, impacts everybody who is indirectly involved, So uh, or the allies uh, of involved parties, and sometimes interestingly also the representatives, for example, of those parties. Uh, it is perhaps uh, not a well-known fact that, for example, um, you know that every uh, every six months or so, I think uh, a different country takes over the EU presidency. And it's a fact that the number of cyber attacks against the state, which is in, or, or the country which is the EU president, increases significantly. So if you are a representative of a particular organization, then you become the focus of attacks. So even those things are, I think, very important to realize. In terms of uh, cyber warfare, so, even if you're an organization in a country that is leading the EU, we are seeing an increase in attacks just because of that particular fact. And, of course, 1 of our topics for today is how, do, how do those conflicts impact people who are not perhaps even indirectly involved in that so organizations, uh, which will be subject to echoes or secondary effects of the, those kinds of cyber warfare. So those are the main questions for today. So how does the, uh, the how does the happening in Ukraine influence the rest of the organizations, either critical infrastructure or non-critical infrastructure? And this is something which we will answer today. Um, secondly, we have to kind of agree on what are the typical technologies which are being used to conduct cyber warfare. So what, what are the weapons? And uh, one of the primary weapons still is malware. So a lot of actors who are directly involved In cyber warfare will actually rely on malware as a primary tool to conduct some kind of uh, to to achieve a particular aim. You might remember, for example, the the classic example of Stuxnet uh, years ago, uh, where the idea is for state actors to create new, fresh malware, which is typically designed to evade existing malware frameworks, uh, which are used for defense. So, the idea is that uh, countries or states will be creative uh, in terms of. um, Create uh, investing a lot of money into the creation of new strains of malware, which are really hard to detect or require some kind of defenders' response. Uh, the malware, of course, has three core um, uh, three core aims. One is to compromise the integrity of the system which it infects, so provide some kind of remote control of a certain system. Uh, then, of course, to steal data and cre- uh, and conduct data exfiltration by stealing sensitive data. And, of course, the most obvious part of uh, malware typically is to destroy to basically make availability compromises through either logical destruction. So destruction of data. Or even physical destruction, which we remember from the times of Stuxnet, Stuxnet, which was actually physically destroying the centrifuge. Uh, the French centrifuge system used to enrich uranium, right? So malware is still a primary tool, which we see and malware will be the focus of uh, david's uh, today uh, discussion about the tools which are used in the ukraine war, the second obvious tool which we use in uh, cyber warfare is ddos so ddos is a, a simple to use tool to knock a particular adversary out of the internet and mostly we are seeing brute force volumetric attacks very popular stuff very uh easy to do and if you are a critical provider this of course might have significant impact if uh, if the entire system or ecosystem of Service providers cannot defend from the volume of those attacks, or if you're not, if you don't have any contingency plans on how to deal with those attacks. Uh, So those would be, I would say, 2 mainstream uh, tools, which are used by cyber for offenders. Uh, I would also mention defacement as a psychological tool. So uh, a lot of times uh, uh, offenders will deface pages as a sign of supremacy. So to basically create some kind of. Propaganda messaging to create some kind of um, uh, attack against, I would say, well-known or trusted brands, whatever those brands might be in the attacked country. And a lot of times, when something gets defaced, it's hard for the public to gauge what is the real impact of that. You know, if if a bank's front page right gets defaced, we, we we IT people typically know that the backend systems are fine, but the general public cannot distinguish. You know, between the defacing of a brand's outer identity and the actual access to the to the sensitive data which might not be um uh, endangered at all right so that would be uh, more mostly a psychological tool and lastly of course we have disinformation this, this we will not talk a lot about disinformation today because disinformation is typically a weapon which is used through social networks and not something which we can easily defend from as IT professionals so to We'll mostly focus on the left side of this picture, but let's be aware that those are the full primary cyber, cyber warfare weapons that state actors are using today. Um, before I hand it off to uh, David, uh, I want to also mention a, a kind of a preview use case. So remember the happenings of today are seeing the creation of new malware, new attacks and so on. But I want to, like, turn the clock 7 years back and remind you, there was already a significant state state attack against Ukraine in 2015, which is attributed to Russia. And that was the attack against their power grid Uh, and just to give you a little bit of details about that. So, uh, in that particular incident, 7 years ago, uh, there was a 6 hour power power outage affecting about a quarter of a million consumers. So not a lot. But what is interesting is to see the details of how this attack. Was performed and what were te- the techniques which were used in this particular attack so uh it was uh, the cr- it, we saw the creation of a custom malware framework which was targeting specific verticals so specific energy verticals which was able to do damage specifically to controllers um, of the of the grid system and that was uh, something which was custom designed for this particular attack so we're not seeing again your you know, uh, classic IT attacks where malware gets created for, let's say, Windows systems or client systems, we were seeing basically custom written firmware for controllers, power transformers, and so on. Uh, the second thing which was important was that this attack was based on 10 months of dwell time. So th- the attackers were present for 10 months in the system and were able to replace its vital components. And that was fo- that was followed by a quick overnight execution. Uh, what was also interesting that this, a- this attack had bo- both um, I would say digital aspects and human aspects. So, after the power was turned off by the attackers, they also flooded the call center of the provider with telephone calls, making sure that users who complain against uh, this, were not able to get uh, a, a representative to speak to. So it, it was kind of a physical world uh, versus uh, so two layers being attacked in the physical world. And it demonstrated expert knowledge. So those are, again, not your script kiddie attackers. Those were attackers who were extremely, extremely well acquainted with the OT technology in the Ukraine power grid. And lastly, the attack was done over the holidays, which ensured that only a skeleton crew was available to fight this attack on the defender's end. So that's how, that was kind of a, you know, a preview, a a teaser, so to say, of what was to happen. So a very important lesson for us to see that the state actors are uh, uh, have obviously extreme resources behind them and can invest in the creation of the dif- different tools which are used for a specific goal. And this is also something which David will talk about later on about the investment capability. So before I hand it off, uh, I think we all have three basic questions before we go off into the more technical aspects of this webinar. So our million dollar questions I think are, is there currently a significant attack pressure on our systems, who are not directly connected to the war from, uh, from the actors, which are present in the Ukraine war, namely Russia. So is there currently a significant attack, attack pressure on us? So should we panic right now? The 2nd question is, will there be a future significant pressure if you are a critical services organization or part of the critical infrastructure? And 3rd question is, will there be a future significant attack pressure on you if you're not a critical? Uh, infrastructure members so if you are an organization which is part of the so-called let's say western world and to answer the questions i think the first one we can actually say that we are pretty certain that there is no current significant pressure uh, resulting from this war because mostly the actors are still focused on the uh, on the on the parties which are actually warring so currently our SOC, for example is not seeing significant attack pressure we are we do see scans we do see attempts at low hanging fruit collection, but we are, not, we are not seeing any significant attack pressures yet, uh, but this doesn't mean that this will not be present in the future. As Russia gets more and more cornered, it will definitely increase the pressure on the critical infrastructures in the Western world. So if you are a part of the critical infrastructure, yes, definitely you will see significantly more pressure uh, in the future. The third thing, which is perhaps not so obvious is what uh, David will talk about, which is the repurposing of weapons to attack the civilian sphere. So the idea that the criminal world will be adopting those weapons uh, and attacking the parties, which are perhaps not part of the critical infrastructure because uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of investment done in those tools already. So as, uh, as, for example, Russian ransomware gangs, such as Conti become more and more connected to the government, for example, they kind of proclaimed allegiance to the Russian government, the line behind the, gov- the line between government and criminal world is blurring even more. And that's why we feel that in the future we will see both aspects, uh, uh attacked. In a significantly more pressing fashion, both the critical services and the non critical services as the. Criminal organizations will adopt the weapons created for war in order to further their goals. That said, uh, I would like to hand off to David. Uh, David is our threat intelligence czar, so to say, and uh, he will be um, uh, guiding you through uh, uh, through uh, a more in-depth look of uh, of uh, the ransomware and of the tools which are used in uh, in this particular conflict. So I will pass control to David and uh, he will take you through specific aspects of this conflict. So David, off to you.
1: Hey, yeah, thank you and uh, hello, everyone. Um... Jan made a great introduction to the cyber warfare in a general scope. And uh, with my part, uh, I would like now to narrow it down to the actual conflict in Ukraine, or we can now definitely say it's a war in Ukraine. Right? Um, And uh, my presentation will be, you know, driven with a flow where we will first explore the the known threat actors um, from before, from the past, right? From the Aggressor in this point being Russia, right? So the Russian nation state sponsored threat actors, and then we will examine quickly their TTP. So, like tactics, techniques and procedures. Uh, This will help us in the context of attributing the known activities, the known cyber activities in the Ukraine war, and perhaps help us to cross reference those with the. With the known threat actors, right? Uh, because at the moment we have to be aware, no 1 took official, uh, you know, attribution of certain attacks. Right? Um, but knowing your enemies always our goal in threat intelligence, because you know how to then defend yourself uh, against uh, future potential attacks. Um, and, uh, at the end, we will kind of, you know, examine the destructive, uh, malwares used in the war and, um. Uh, and, and we have uh, 1 interesting model that we use in concha that I will show you later on. So without further ado, let's start with the threat actors. Let's see if this um, actually work now if I press. Okay, it's great. Uh, so. 1st column here in the slide, uh, we see the known threat actors. Which are usually, or let's say, we know that they are sponsored by Russia. As a state, right? So these are threat actors like Sandworm, Gamma Redon, uh, APT twenty eight, and APT twenty um, nine. By examining their activities, we were we will be able to kind of cross reference their activities with the activities in the Ukraine war. But if we check the activities that we know now without, uh, you know, mixing uh, the current conflict into this. These are the three kind of major or very high-level overview of activities that these threat actors actually perform. So, you know, uh, they they are capable of uh, developing destructive malware. Uh, they, um, for example, APT28 and APT29 are very known for their espionage acts, like uh, gathering intel for, for the Russia uh, security services. And, of course, uh, Gamma Redon, which launched several DDoS attacks, uh, even in Ukraine now uh which is very important and sandworm everyone knows them by by notpetya i guess right so the destructive malware which turned to be ransomware at the end targeting also private businesses uh, later on so this is kind of the high level overview of the known russian threat actors and their known activities on a very high level which would ho- potentially help us to map uh, the current ukrainian uh, activities to them uh, on the next slide, we will see here, it's it, actually probably don't see it exactly, but you might recognize that it's the miter attack framework here. Here are listed uh, miter attack uh, techniques with the tactics in the columns, right? Uh, for the given threat actors from the given Russian threat actors that I showed you in the previous slide. So these are their typical, you know, uh, techniques used. Um, it's not necessary that you uh, see every technique, but I want to point out it's good to have this overview because when we examine new malware, we try to find out the TTPs of that malware. And by knowing those, we can potentially cross-reference and attribute them to the, the threat actors that we are aware with help of such a matrix here, right? Now let's go further. Uh, and now let's see what's actually happening in Ukraine war, Like right? So the known activities that we were able to observe now, uh, Probably you heard about some already because it's always in the media, Uh, but it's always good in this context to have to be aware of those. So here I list some, let's say five categories, right? The I I try to group them in the five categories. So one of these, uh, few of these, you saw in already in Jan's uh, introduction. So destructive malware and DDoS and kind of espionage and propaganda and so on. These are kind of the general cyber warfare tactics, right? That are used, right? and uh, for example, if we go through each uh, briefly, so the destructive malware, yeah, we heard about uh, WhisperGate, Hermetic Viper, Isaac Viper. So we see all of these kind of vi- Viper style of malware, right? Uh, and the interesting part is that these are not, you know, don't have necessarily a ransom component in it, But with a disclaimer for the Hermetic Hermetic Viper, which we will discuss a bit later, um, these are all intended to erase the data, so destroy, disrupt, you know. Um, uh, Kinda, of, kinda of deny the services uh, of the victims that they target to, and uh, if we move on to the distributed denial of service category, we observed several uh, government, uh, so Ukrainian government websites that were uh, brought down for several hours, even or uh, sometimes if it's during the nighttime, it was for days and so on. Uh, so these were like Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Internal Affairs, uh, Ministry of Defense, all of course uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine. And, uh, also the 2 biggest banks, like Privat bank and Oshad bank were also targeted by DDoS because it's the, you know, financials, uh, that, uh, that are helping, you know, in the, in the Ukraine context, uh, of course, um, without good espionage, without good reconnaissance, there is no. Uh, successful cyber attack operation so that um, in the context of cyber warfare we can ob- we were able to actually observe some phishing campaigns that were targeting some critical infrastructure like energy sector specifically uh, we will see in the next slide some examples of these phishing attempts the main purpose is to either you know um, Trick uh, employees uh, or the you know the recipients of these phishing or social engineering techniques to give out some credentials or, or to just obtain information in general you know about the infrastructure like hardware and software assets in the given organization or given entity. Um, the propaganda part, yep, it's it's imp- important in the context of cyber warfare. It's um, it's but it's very very limited to the cyber warfare again, right? So it's not maybe a concern. Um, for us, for for the businesses, for the private businesses, and, uh, and the you know countries that are not involved in the war. But it's good to know, for example, that Russia is very very you know prominent in kind of naming this war as a special military operation. That if if you observe some some of their news, you could see that uh, they are kind of um, advertising this as liberation of Ukraine people on because they are under certain you know harsh regime and so on. Uh, and uh, this propaganda is uh, you know. Um, very important because uh i i uh, like you know assange quoted uh, he said that people need to be fooled into a war right um, no one likes wars uh people don't like wars uh of course um, let's move on to the supply chain attacks and uh these supply chain attacks i put it as a separate category, but these Concrete uh, that we obs- uh, uh, this specific uh, s- uh, supply chain attack that we observe is very much connected to the DDoS and the espionage acts. So, Kitsoft is an IT company in Ukraine which was uh, managing, you know, uh, several websites of governments, for example, right? And by compromising Kitsoft, the adversaries were able to, you know, um, o- obtain information uh, about, uh, you know, government websites, um, uh, the critical infrastructure websites, and it was easier for them, you know, to pr- perform disruptive attacks uh, towards them and with that said you know uh, we have to be also aware um that in the certain timeline it's happening every day, you know, like depicted in this, um, you know, bottom part. It's uh, you know, third March, seventh March, 9th, March. Every day there's some new cyber activity in the ongoing conflict. So, uh, what I want to point out with that is that it's really um, relevant that we stay on top of these and have you know necessary threat intelligence to combat uh, and be or be prepared for the potential you know uh, redirection of those uh, cyber attacks. Okay, on this slide, uh, just a few examples, which I mentioned, so for example, this uh, picture depicts the interesting part that I mentioned. So the hermetic Viper was initially just a destructive Malver, but. The latest, uh, sample that we observed had these. Party ticket, it's codenamed party ticket uh, component, which is a ransomware component to it. So it gives us uh, an idea you know, about repurposing the malware. So it was initially thought as a destructive malware, but soon it's very kind of, it seems easy to add a ransom component to it. And this is uh, the screenshot that you get as the ransom note right at the end, um, but it's very uh, trivial here. So it sees we can. We observed that this was kind of a trial run, you know, to see if the ransom part works. It's, it's mentioning elections in future elections in the US. So it's, it's a bit weird. Yeah. Um, In the next screenshot, we see the defacement uh, example. So the uh, 1 of the websites that I mentioned, so this is the Ministry of Defense website that was defaced um, by the Russian uh, cyber attacks uh the the phishing campaigns right that i mentioned and of course uh, la- uh, the latest ISAC viper um this is the error messages that you receive and uh, when you reboot for example the the victimized machine with that knowledge right so we we know now certain activities are happening i would like now to focus on the technology especially in the destructive malware part here because destructive malware i believe uh, we believe is actually the one that will be repurposed uh, after the war so change perhaps change into ransomware uh, or something like that or even used as a destructive malware as it is right um, it's good to know you know uh, in the context of ukraine war who they target now so jan said yeah at this moment we do not believe that uh, it is you know, unlikely that they will use this destructive malware to target some Western organizations at this very moment because their interest is to hide their, you know, crown jewels. This is the adversary's crown jewels. It's their destructive malware. This is their, you know, intellectual property. They don't want to give it out to many researchers out there so they so they would be prepared for them and, you know, craft some nice detection and prevention rules. So it's targeting at the moment Ukrainian governments, Ukrainian and Ukrainian military facilities. And of course, since it's destructive malware, they is to erase data. Uh, okay, of course, this is the logical aspect. And again, like Jan mentioned, there's also the physical aspect. They can disrupt, you know, critical infrastructure, like you know, taking over some uh, energy uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, to take out electricity, internet, and so on, uh, which can, we can already observe in Ukraine. That's um, happening. Uh, and of. One of the important aspects of destructive malware in context of this webinar is the behavior, and here we see very high-level uh, behavior of the destructive malware. So I wanted to abstract it really on a high level so that we see the flow. So each of the destructive malware that we analyzed has this same flow. So first they enumerate some physical and logical drives, then they are kind of validating which operating system they run on. So based on that. Maybe they terminate execution because they do not support, you know, compromising Linux or Mac or something like that. So it's important for them, and then they have to figure out where the system directory is because um, uh, from there they want to erase that at the end. Because if you do it at the beginning, you cannot, you know, uh, erase all the other stuff because the OS won't work anymore. Um, and of course, the last step is the actual, you know, deletion of the data and, um, uh, yeah, uh, encrypting them if necessary. Uh, and finally, I would like to mention destructive model consequences. So, yeah, it, these are very obvious. I know, but uh, it's good to mention. So the victim victim machine, of course, is no longer usable. You receive the message that we saw, you know, the system operates, uh, uh, the operating system is not found. Right. Uh, and, um, all data is lost and if you don't have recovery or the backups, you know, you, you literally lost your data f- like forever. Um. And in the context of Ukraine war, these are the 1 of the known. Uh, Malwares, the most used actually destructive malverse in the Ukraine war, which is Fermetic Viper, the newer version, which is Isaac Viper, and the a bit older one, the WhisperGate. So, the Isaac Viper one is the newest one. So maybe just you know to give you a, a short, short, very short uh, you know introduction to it. Uh, it it different it is very similar to hermetic viper that's why a lot of researchers thought it's probably the same um, you know malware but just a different variant but when we were reverse engineering this uh, viper the sample we could observe that it was written actually in the different programming languages uh, like it the previous version and it made different system calls while still maintaining the same flow so like i said the, in the behavior part so still enumeration validation and erase and one of the samples obtained actually had also the debug log so it seems that uh, you know the actors are also testing this, and, uh, this malware still. sorry they are actively in development, you know uh, this malware. This is very important. So you could see some debug files like uh, actually writing out what each step is doing um, in this case. And now that we know you know we, that the malware are used and these are really disruptive and they pose destruction on our assets, we uh, uh, at Concha, you know have to had to develop some sort of model we developed it even before but now it's perfect time to use it we call it malis malis stands for the malware lifecycle and with this malware lifecycle cycle, uh, it actually depicts the high level overview of what goes into developing a malware so we will try to attribute a cost to each phase of this model which you will soon see and this cost will kind of tell you how hard it is to change or modify each phase so with that, we will try to understand how hard or easy it is to repurpose a certain malware for, you know, a different target, a different intent and so on. So let's, let's see the phases. Okay. Oh, yeah. So target, the first phase is, of course, target uh, every, every, uh, you know, uh, cybertech needs to have a target. So who do we want to target? Uh, you know, and maybe perhaps why? Um, and this is uh, the very general step, right? Uh, the next phase is, of course, the purpose. What do we want to do? by attacking this target you know uh, by launching a cyber attack to do. what is the purpose do we want to destroy their data do we want to gain information intelligence espionage you know uh, it depends or do we want to perform ransomware attacks to, to you know extort them for money so we need to define the purpose because the purpose is then actually important for uh, the malware development itself what kind of malware we need but before you start with the development itself it, the you know the adversaries or the the yeah yeah let's say the adversaries need to perform some sort of reconnaissance because now we know the target we know the purpose about it and now we can perform reconnaissance on that target right or target if it's single singular and by obtaining infrastructure information such as software and hardware assets, which will greatly help the malware developers you know to come up with some exploits uh, with the given uh, assets that the target has and by knowing all that we The adversaries can start developing the actual malware. This is the actual software used there, of course, uh, at the end. Uh, And this is the, we will see the high, highly the the highest cost uh, in the malice model. Of course, at the end, it's the deployment and execution. It's worth it to mention it because it's not only developing malware. You at the end have to deploy it and execute it in. If it's successful execution, then you can only call it a successful operation. Right? And. uh, Now in the, in the, in the circles below, I kind of attribute the cost values for each phase. So for the target, we can see that it's very easy to change. So it's, it has a low, low level of cost. Right? So it's very easy to change target. You have to be very specific here. So today I'm targeting Jan, but tomorrow I can easily say I will target David. So by not thinking about anything else, just these words, it's very easy to do. Okay. I want to change the target. Very easy. Right? The purpose is a bit tricky one. It can be very high or very low. It's very low to change the purpose you know, of the malware if it can contain the same source code that it was in, the, in its initial purpose. So if you still want to destroy something, but we want to now destroy it in the Jan's environment, not in David's, for example, it's very easy to change it. It's very easy to change it, but if you want to somehow now extort. You know, David, instead of Jan, but uh, we have to change the whole code for it because it was meant to, uh, you know, to be a destructive malware or let's say, espionage act. And it's very hard to change it into a destructive malware in this case. Okay, reconnaissance, it's uh, kind of in the middle, you know, it's uh, not that easy to perform. Actually, it's quite easy to perform, but it's noisy. And that's why the adversaries don't want to do it. You know, fingerprinting, scanning, um, uh, phishing campaign, social engineering, and so on. It's noisy. That's why it's risky, right? Uh, but it's not that hard to perform at the end. The malware development is, of course, the highest, uh, you know, uh, cost attribute because it's very hard to change uh, the source code. It's a very creative approach, and uh, it, this is the, what adversaries do not want to do. You know, it costs even up to millions of euros to uh, develop. You know, a zero day, for example, if it's in the context of zero day. Um, and of course, the deployment execution is also not uh, the easiest part. Of course, Yeah, so you have malware, but now you need to execute it and uh, you know evade uh, the, the the detections and prevention. This is very hard to do uh, at the end. So all in all, the the main point of this uh, malice model is to see that the existing destructive malware can be easily repurposed into targeting someone else, right? And This is not to, you know, kind of have some scare tactics here or or anything like that, but it's very good to be aware about the threat intelligence that we have about current malware, because if it's so easy to retarget it or repurpose it to, you know, to, to a different target. uh, It is very valuable information that we can get today from the, from the existing malware and to be prepared, you know, uh, if it potentially would attack us because no one would uh, you know uh, if if it costs millions so like you see in the marvel development it, if it costs 100000s of euros even right it's not worth to just throw this uh, in the trash right after the war definitely not so uh, they want to reuse these things that cost millions and uh, probably even years to develop or months at least to develop such a sophisticated malware right um, they will try to repurpose it maybe not as nation states they might easily sell them on dark web you know markets uh, the malware after the war and it can be used by anyone and this is the whole uh, point that i wanted to um, kind of present in this webinar and I believe with that, uh, I will give it over now back to Jan, who will also then now explain you the defensive approaches that we can do, you know, to stay vigilant, to stay resilient uh, against such potential cyber attacks.
0: Thank you, David. So, uh, so David has explained to us the economic model of that, right? So we always claim that uh, today cyber crime is a business model kind of uh, a, a, has a business model kind of approach. And we can now see that, uh, the, uh, development of malware for cyber warfare means, uh, is actually something which is quite an investment and uh, it should be repurposed, uh, especially because we know that the lines be- between cyber crime and government are blurring in Russia. So, this is the, I think the concerning model, uh, which we see, and that's why we will see also the, uh, the tools which are used in the conflict used against organizations which are related to the conflict indirectly and also commercial or non-commercial organizations which are targets of cybercrime, who will be able to obtain those tools which were largely invested in. So let's discuss a little bit about the defenses which we need to ramp up for this. So a lot of times uh, if you look today uh, on the internet about the uh, guidelines on what you should do because of the Ukraine war, You will find typically articles saying, like, you have to redo all of your security stuff, right? So you have to look at the authentications, You have to train users and so on. I think this is a bit counterproductive because nobody has the time to really do everything right from ground zero. So uh, I wanted to give you 2 different slides. 1 slide would be what are your long term architectural focuses? So what should be things in which you should be in which direction you should be moving architecturally, or with, with your security roadmap. And the 2nd slide will be things which you should do now. Right? So at this moment in time, um, to, to mitigate things, which are coming in the near future. Right? So, 1st of all, let's talk about strategies. So things you should do in the long term, uh, in order to, uh, to, to, to respond to the happenings in Ukraine. So, 1st of all, um, we have seen all the malware coming out as the major tool, which will be used against you as well. And if we want if we want to address malware or any kind of code which is acting outside of normal boundaries, we need to typically move into the list privilege kind of zero day attack, uh, zero day defenses. So it means that um, I, I typically say this like all the time, but we should be moving away from all the blacklisting approaches and going towards the list privilege whitelisting approaches. I think this is a good gr- good time to reaffirm our trust and our belief. That, uh, it is, uh, it, this is the correct direction. So, every single time you are designing controls in your environment, you should be probably moving into the list privilege approach and you should be moving into more and more of 0 day controls. So, getting away from, I would say, raw threat intelligence and IOC and blacklist based approaches into the approaches, which are guaranteed to a certain degree to stop attacks. Which are unknown at that point in time, so making sure that that our defenses are not based on a race with the attackers. But are based on some kind of um, uh, generic approaches, which are able to spot even the zero attacks. So that means behavioral white listing stuff or anomaly based detection. So we should be investing way more in that particular area, be it on the network endpoint application side. So that's definitely uh, a confirmation that this is the correct approach because. Uh, the attackers are still predominantly using things which are based on execution uh, to attack our environments. Uh, secondly, we need to. Again, as a community, we need to, assume uh, we need to, um, uh, to embrace the assume breach philosophy. So we will be breached, right? It's just a matter of how good of a, of a fire brigade we are. So definitely you should create within your organization an understanding that you need internal incident response capability. It can be very rudimentary, it can be done with the help of external parties, but this should be in the in the mindset of management, it should be in the mindset of IT that we will be breached, right? So we should never ever have the idea that this is an event which is improbable. And thirdly, as uh, David perhaps uh, demonstrated is that events are unfolding very fast we sometimes cannot rely on the vendors themselves to provide us with all the protections or sometimes the vendors will do the you know the low hanging fruit and they will deploy preventions which are really basic such as for example again blacklists iocs and stuff like that so we need to be aware with threat intelligence about what's going on and seeing if our defenses are adequate for the current developments so this is i think extremely important we shouldn't treat threat intelligence as a raw machine readable stream, we should treat threat intelligence as human readable, a- actionable intel, which we professionals consume and compare our defenses against. So I think this is a very important moment. We we need to keep on learning uh, to see if our defenses are are appropriate for the given situation. And the more we will move into the you know the left side of this slide, the more we will move into zero-day prevention, zero trust approaches. The less this will be an issue. Because every single time we will receive a threat intelligence update, we will say, I'm okay, because I have done the correct architectural decisions. So if you are not so much into zero trust, not so much into zero prevention right now, if most of your defenses are relying on, I would say, blacklisting, IOCs, and so on, it is even more important for you to be really current about the events which are unfolding because you need to you need to keep on running, right? So to say if you have not yet invested. Uh, in the controls which allow you to to take a breath uh, because you will be protected against zero days. Thirdly, I think that the time is ripe and the upper managements of our companies understand that th- times are different, times are changing. So now it's a good time to create, I think, new budgets for new security investments. So if they they have not listened to you before, most managements now are listening. So, it is our experience that there has been kind of of a wave of awareness in upper managements where you can actually probably finally get certain investments through because it is now, I think, high time when attacks are about to increase. Because mainly because of Russia being cornered into this situation. And lastly, uh, this is a very contentious issue. So uh, there are certain companies which might be influenced by the Russian government. So again, consider migrating away from high risk vendors and partners and also be aware that certain companies, which used to be Russian based are no longer Russian based. So definitely investigate each company to see what is the real level of risk of your partner or of your vendor before making any hasty decisions. So, again, uh, having a Russian name doesn't mean this is still a Russian company. So be aware of of those kind of things, but definitely I do expect that the Russian government will be able to infiltrate local companies in order to exploit their presence. For supply chain attacks, of course, right? So those would be general, the six general areas of focus. I think we should we should we should use based on the current situation. But the big question is what you should do now. By now, I mean in the following months. So uh, I will use the classic prevent, detect, uh, respond, uh, and repair kind of chain and list the things which you should do in this particular operational chain of your controls. So definitely in the prevent phase. Uh, if there will be some attacks, they will be typically based against your exposed assets 1st, right? So they will attack your exposed assets. And uh, I think it, 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 like, we repeat this all the time. But I think now is really the time to do multi factor authentication and really the time to do reliable fast patching for your exposed assets. Right? So this is something which for which you have no excuse anymore. Not to do very quickly. Right, we are still seeing organizations which rely on security to obscurity with exposed services, hoping nobody will find that login window. So this is no longer true, right? That this can be ignored. So, definitely focus your efforts into making sure that the exposed part of your IT um, IT systems and of course, OT systems are uh, properly authenticated and properly patched. Uh, remember that your users, so people behind computers who serve the Internet are also the exposed assets, right? They might not be, you know, the firewall might not allow incoming connections to them, but they are just one click away from getting compromised. So users who continuously visit potentially uh, compromised content on the Internet. I would say they are your your outside layer as well of your company. And when they're compromised, I think the attacker is more or less very close to your crowns, ju- crown jewels. And what you could also do. Threat intelligence vendors such as us or uh, our services or our or services in the market. They also provide you with IOCs, IOCs, which are IP addresses, hashes and so on related to the current Ukraine war. And you can consider taking those IOCs and embedding them into your preventive measures if your vendor has not already done so. So you can, for example, take the IPs and embed them in your firewalls to, for example, prevent all the scans from known actors in this conflict. So those are the two things which I think the most important parts from the preventive uh, aspect. Uh, I think what you you should do, you should also consider that this is the right time to address the other part of security, which is the detection part, right? The yang to the prevention seeing. So, if you currently feel that you are missing certain preventive controls, this is, I think, high time to use managed detection response. The idea behind managed detection response is to act as a kind of an umbrella to making sure that everything which leaks through your preventive defenses will be eventually caught by the MDR service. So manage detection response, I think this is the the time to actually engage yourself into I would say significantly creating uh, your your defensive capabilities or upgrading capabilities with the umbrella of of, uh, detection response. For those of you who have OT environments, typically you are critical infrastructure or even if you're not, the attacks have demonstrated that uh, state actors very much like to go for OT environments because OT environments have direct impact to the physical world and can be used as both propaganda devices, right? Attacks like this, and as well uh, for disruption of normal life in attacked countries. So if you are running an OT environment and if your OT environment is currently not watched by any kind of security mechanism or doesn't, doesn't have any kind of specific prevention, this is definitely the time to focus on that. So I think those will be the prime target in the following years. And I think there is no excuse For relying on the isolation of OT environments, because we know that this isolation is crumbling. Right? So today we have a lot of technologies, which are non intrusive. For example, like passive network monitoring of OT environments and I think again, there is no excuse for not investing in that particular part because this will be a main 1 of the main focuses of the attackers uh in addition what you can do today you can of course take the iocs provided by the vendors and put it in your detection capabilities so you can have your cm or your edr system notifying you uh, when those iocs appear if you cannot prevent them outright and if you already have an mdr service uh and you are watching your environment uh also make sure that you're watching any kind of partners who might be doing supply chain attacks against you right so this is uh, an important part so kaseya has taught us that you know a managed SOC or a SOck service or an MDR service should not only look at yourself but also at the gateways to your partners as well as the uh, as well as for example, things which are already present on the internet. Uh, thirdly, uh, in the respond phase, uh, definitely test your instant response plans. If you don't have them, create them at least rudimentary ones. so aim to achieve at least a basic level of instant response capability in house. And if you need skills, if you need help, get a contract with an external partner who is able to back you up with an SLA to to arrive as a fire brigade when necessary. So a combination of local knowledge. So, at least basic local incident management capability, combined with an external company skills, I think is essential to have today uh, with something which is available to you in a short on short notice. And if you are concerned about DDoS. So, uh, as you know, there are some kind of traditional DDoS responses, such as scrubbing of traffic relying on your upstream ISP to provide DDoS response uh, be aware that sometimes this response is not effective sometimes this response cannot be done properly so consider some creative DDoS responses if you are concerned about DDoS there are things which you can do which uh, which allow you to still have connectivity even in the in the face of the a DDoS attack for example you can have secret backdoor links you can restrict connectivity to your systems to a particular user population, like the local country and stuff like that. So you can play with BGP. You can play with uh, with, with routing to make sure that the attacker doesn't have a clear target or that you become unreachable. To the attacker uh, based on uh, based on manipulating your reachability, for example, so it's good to have some kind of resiliency plans, uh, even if the. Attack cannot be stopped by your upstream ISPs, they definitely beat the fact uh, that uh, well, they beat the option of disconnecting from the internet, I think, because otherwise the attacker has won. And the most classic, I think, uh, uh, advice at the end so make sure that your backups are truly, truly resilient. So it means that they cannot be influenced by the attacker in your IT environment. So they are either offline. Or extremely well protected against change via some kind of, you know, right only storage or uh, immutable storage. So this is also again, uh, I think a very important part if your business depends on fast recovery. So, again, this is a collection of things, which are, I think, very focused uh, and should be done now, if possible, especially with the fact that we, we now do have the air of the upper management because of the current situation. So hopefully this webinar was of good use to you Uh, and uh, if you need additional help or if you need consultation about this uh, in each country that we operate in we have uh, security ambassadors who are experts who are able to listen to your issues and create a solution which would be uh, which would be, uh, perfect for your particular environment. So definitely uh, make a screenshot of this, uh, connect to our security ambassadors. If you want to talk more about this involve us involve me involve the David, involve David and our threat intelligence team in order to help you with the specifics. Um, I would like to open up the discussion now, uh, based on, um, uh, based on your questions. So, please use the questions and answers panel if you want to ask about a particular aspect of technical aspect of malware about a particular aspect of the guidelines which are providing and so on. Um, so there, there's a question which uh, well, which, was, which, is about the Federal Office for Information Security in Germany warns against against Kaspersky's products. Yes, uh, this is one of the things which, which I mentioned. So for example, Kaspersky uh, based, based on my knowledge uh, is working out of, out of Switzerland now. And uh, I'm not sure if there's any significant leverage that the R- Russian government has over them. Uh, so, uh, my personal opinion would be that again, they, they are probably okay uh, to work with. Uh, but, um, I would definitely look into, uh, into. Other companies generically when you do risk assessment of your vendors to see. what how much leverage or in what way they could be, uh, they could be influenced by the Russian government. Um, there is uh, another question. Uh, could you recommend some sources to keep up to date with current threats? Um. Definitely, uh, you could subscribe to conscious threat feed, which David is curating. So, uh, you can contact us and, uh, we can actually give you the information on how to, how to subscribe to our own. Uh, freemium threat feed, uh, otherwise we, we, we ourselves, we use a bunch of OSINT and paid intelligence sources to, uh, bring all the knowledge together. So, if you want to know more, I think David will be will be glad to answer this in more detail offline. So, uh, so definitely contact us for complex questions like that. We don't have a single place right of reference that we will direct you to because one of the one of the kind of uh, truisms of threat intelligence is that not a there is no a single party who knows everything. You know, you need to really curate, curate information from tens of different parties to arrive at a broader picture of what's going on okay any additional questions um uh there's a question uh is there any other written info on this uh yes uh, david has published a great white paper slash blog post which you can find on conscious website which details the information about the malware used so if you want to know more technically Uh, David has, uh, has an article up there on on conscious site, which you can go to and I think there will be a follow up email to this webinar in which you will receive. Uh, well, let's put the link in there so we can actually get more technical knowledge about this. Okay, there are some additional questions. Let me read them. Uh so Lars, very good question. So one thing is threats from Russia, uh, which are here, but uh there's also the Ukrainian IT army conducting similar attacks towards companies, especially European companies still operating in Russia. Yeah, uh, so I cannot I cannot do like a politically correct comment on that. I definitely think that uh uh any any the things which are of, of criminal nature should, we should we should definitely not in, endorse in this case. Uh but um let me let me let me try to to uh, answer this in a in a funny way uh so you know um uh, i think it was miko hiponen who said you know not all hackers are russian right about 20 percent of them are actually ukrainian so that that's kind of a joke answer uh, to your serious question uh, but i definitely feel that uh, we should we should definitely um not single out uh russia as the as the only actor. We should be prepared for any kind of threat actors in this situation, because obviously it's a war situation and uh, desperate measures are being taken even with a lot of collateral damage. So, uh, we should be. Uh, we should be, um, uh, we should take a higher moral stand here and defend against any attacker because it is our environments, which are important and our personal data and our organizations. Um. So uh, Carl is uh, re- remarking in it general, it's common that attackers live and and root around in an environment for a long time. Yes, this is a very, very good observation. So in most cases that we see attacks are not lightning fast, which means that you when you are attacked, uh, you don't have seconds to respond. Right? in most cases, when we, for example, are called for incident response, we find out that organizations have been compromised for four, six, eight months, and so on because the Modus operandi of attackers today is such that the attackers, as they penetrate your environment, they will stay in that environment for as long as possible to find out where your crown jewels are. And that typically takes months. So um, there is a an extremely good chance that an MDR service or somebody observing that environment will stop them or, or will catch them and stop them very early in this process if you are continually observing that environment. So, yes, definitely, this is one of the the shifts in the mentalities of attackers. As they shifts toward as they shift towards ransomware, right? If they want to delete everything, they want to do it as quickly as possible if it's if it's a uh, directed against the clients. but if they want to have a larger scope uh, of deletion or a larger scope of ransom, they will definitely remain in your system for a long time, uh, significantly increasing our chances of detection, right Most of the time we detect such attackers within hours of their them entering the system. Uh but again without any kind of visibility, without any kind of continuous um monitoring, those attackers tend to stand in your systems for six, eight, or more months, which is witnessed by the you know the 2015 Ukraine hack where, where the t- dwell time was actually 10 months. Um there was also there's also a question how do you protect backups since you need to be able to have network access? Yes, so so how do you protect backups properly? So today uh, there are a lot of backup systems which are uh which are write only so it means they keep different copies of data. So, even if they are. Uh, even if they are, uh, if, if some malicious data is written to them, they still could keep copies of old data and so on. So that is 1 option. And the 2nd option would be to have a compromise of an offline backup and a more. Um, of a, a more, uh, not, not, a, not a frequent backup schedule. So there is no perfect solution for that. Definitely. Uh, but a combination of, of, uh, kind of, um uh warm backups uh like write once read really many times and uh offline backups would be probably the best choice at this point. Um I'm just looking if there are any additional questions so if this does not satisfy you because it's a complex question definitely reach out to us and we can discuss together uh, the complexity of how to design a ransomware resistant backup because the moment that the backup system is connected to the network it needs to be really hardened and really patched, right? Because you don't want to. First of all, backups have two issues, right? First of all, bad data can be written to the backup. Secondly, the backup system itself can be compromised, and this is those are all the issues which we have to uh, to have to mitigate when we are designing a ransomware or uh, an incident resistant backup. Uh, another question: Should we fear the fact that some people who are working in IT in Russia and remotely are now unable to get paid? Um, and they will find new ways of getting paid. Definitely, uh, there is definitely the fear of recruitment, right? But there is also, I think, the good part that many of those people will actually come to us and be part of our defenses, right? So this is, I think, also really good, uh, really a, a really good thing. So a lot of people who are uh, against this war uh, are really good engineers, and uh, we should welcome their part in the in our in our defenses as well, right? After after security vetting them, of course. Right? Um, okay, lots of questions, but we are out of time. So, uh, thank you very much for the questions. Thank you for your interactivity. It was ex- excellent. So any questions you might additionally have any kind of interaction you want with us any kind of help you need from us, either in terms of services or consulting. Please contact our security ambassadors and I thank you very much for attending this webinar and I hope you see to see you all on the next 1. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.